Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have Paul Elliott. Paul's an American top teen Watertown black belt under Mark Stevens. Paul also happens to be one of the fantastic instructors for BJJ Globetrotters. Paul is also the author of the amazing free BJJ online resource slash blog, simplebjj.com. In this episode, we go deep into some of the mechanics of BJJ, and we go into some fascinating conceptual conversation. I really enjoyed talking BJJ with Paul. I always get inspired with ideas when I listen to him, and I think you will too. Just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify, and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Please leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show, and consider becoming a patron at anchor.fm forward slash foreverwhitebelt. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at foreverwhitebelt. Check us out on Instagram at foreverwhitebeltshow. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in the city of Novato in Marin County, only 30 minutes north of San Francisco. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Paul Elliott. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad to be on here. It's, uh, I've been listening to your podcast actually quite a bit, so it's, it's nice to be on here. Awesome. So, Paul, you are a black belt under Mark Stevens, correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, I've been and a black belt a for about engineer? four years now. Oh, yeah, yeah, a software engineer. That's kind of like I approach a lot of my jujitsu from, from that standpoint. It's like I always think that you should train the way that you think, and so I bring a software engineer's perspective to all of my jujitsu. Yeah. You know, I often say, haven't been a web developer and stuff myself. The only binary thing about jujitsu is that jujitsu is not binary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think the only thing binary about jujitsu is that, you know, it either works or it doesn't. And you respond based on whether it works or it doesn't. If the technique works, cool. If it doesn't, okay, well, you know, what do we need to do to modify it or do we throw it away? Right. It's just when you run across those people that are like, this is the way you have to do it. Yeah, I mean, like that's fun for tongue-in-cheek stuff, but yeah, there is there is a lot of absolutes that are presented, and it's, and it's rarely absolutes. So everything in jiu-jitsu is so context-sensitive, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's everybody can have this very big confidence statement. Like, I, I love to say that you should always do takedowns, which mm -hmm. in the abstract is a nice idea, and I like to make fun of guard pullers, but the reality is that if you pull guard and you make use of it within three seconds, I got nothing to say. I can't argue with it. If you get a submission or a sweep within three seconds, cool. You know, I don't like pulling guard, but if you do that, I always tell my students, you know, all you have to do to pull guard is use it right away. And right. I won't argue with you. Otherwise, I'd prefer to see people do takedowns. But it's like, again, it's not an absolute. It depends on the context. Exactly. How did you learn to tie your belt? <laughs> um, you know, the standard thing, you know, the first thing I did was uh, I had somebody show me, you know, just the basics. And I would recognize, okay, it's a simple square knot. That's all cool. The basics and, of tying a belt? Wow. This is the first time I've heard this. Okay. Yeah, well, I okay, so I like knots. I go backpacking, so knots are kind of important. So uh -huh. I've always appreciated a well-tied knot. You know, I was always making sure, okay, well, what's the best way to tie this knot? And I actually, you remember when uh, Henry Gracie came out with that video of the super knot? Yes. So like literally three weeks before, it was bugging me that the, the knot that I was tying wasn't really staying tied, just a regular square knot. Mm -hmm. And so I started, I actually have this, I have this photo of me of I've, I've got these two different colored belts and I was trying to like figure everything out and figure out how to tie a knot real well. And I came up with the super knot that, you know, is Hollywood knot or whatever he calls it. And I, and I came up with that just based on what I knew about knots. And I'm like, oh, wow. this is awesome. I, I discovered this cool thing and I was all proud of this. And then Henner releases this video like three weeks later. I'm like, I should have done that. <laughs> he's getting all the, he's getting all the glory <laughs> for this he's one. He's getting all the juice. Yeah. The social juice for yeah. that. 
Yeah, so that's that's I, I learned how to tie my knot by you know just like you know when somebody comes in, you always take pity on the new guys, show them how to tie a knot, and then laugh at them a little bit when their knot goes opposite of the way that it should, yeah. and then everybody finally gets it. But then that that wasn't enough for me. I had to go a little bit farther and, and try to figure out a better knot. What did your first month look like of jujitsu? It was both exhausting and exhilarating. And my big thing with jujitsu when I started, I'm fairly athletic. But I wasn't like in jujitsu shape. Nobody's in jujitsu shape when they start. Correct. My big metric on how I was doing in jujitsu was how much water I consumed. So I would go in and we'd do an hour of class, an hour of open mat. And the first month, I think I was going through about half a liter of water just for the warm up. It was just like, you know, I was taking breaks from the warm up to drink some water to try to survive the whole thing. Wow. And then uh, over time, yeah, after that first month, when I started getting familiar with the warm-ups, you know, the water consumption got less and less. And, it, it, you know, it started out as two hours of jiu-jitsu required three liters of water to, you know, by the time I got to purple belt, I was like, I was sometimes forgetting to drink water at all mm-hmm. you know, as you got more efficient and all that. But yeah, that first month was just, I was getting my butt kicked by these guys that were 50 pounds lighter than me. I thought that was really, really cool that people that looking at them, you'd, you'd never know. You don't, you can't look at their body type or anything and say how much skill they have and skill what matters. You know, by them basically working me over like I didn't exist. I'm like, you know, if I can figure out how to do this, this is going to be amazing because then the my weight's actually going to be an advantage against these guys. <laughs> <laughs> so... So yeah, it was it was it was a really cool experience. I I really appreciated how interesting, complex, challenging, all the tough things about jujitsu. I really enjoyed it, and you know, it had been a dream for years ever since the first UFC. I watched that on pay per view, and I was like, well, I guess I want to train jujitsu now. But right. I didn't have the opportunity to do it until. And I found out about six months after it started and and I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to commit. I'm just going to do it. So it really didn't matter what happened to me. I wanted to make sure that I filled this dream of training jujitsu and learning how to do all these awesome things. So let's talk about warmups. You brought that up a little bit. What are your thoughts on warmups? Do you think running in circles, shrimping up and down the mat, does, does that still uh, provide value? Or is your thought in some sort of modern day warmups of positional warmups, yeah. et cetera? Or, or what are you thinking now? Yeah, I mean, I've evolved on that quite a bit over time. Nobody enjoys warmups. Not really. I mean, like the standard, you know, shrimping up and down the mat and, and all those, you know, traditional warmups, nobody really likes that. It can be viewed as useful from the standpoint of the instructor looking at that and saying, okay, do they look like they know what they're doing? And for like, you know, maybe the first one or two stripes on the white belt, you can use that as kind of, you know, looking around the room and seeing, okay, this person looks like they're starting to get it. You know, doing some of these fundamental motions, there's there's an argument for that. However, you know, these like 20 and 30 minute warmups are just dumb. Sometimes they get done in under the theory of, well, I want people to be tired when they're training so mm. that they do the technique more accurately, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, maybe if you're a competitor, sure, you can make an argument for that. But for the everyday hobbyist, all you're really trying to avoid getting injured. So what we kind of circle around to is it's kind of like follow the science. The first thing to do is controlled articular rotations. Make sure each joint is warmed up. It's moving full range of motion and you just work your way through the body. Hmm. Then once that's done, then we can do some basic line drills, you know, so like a little bit of shrimping, a little bit of uh, basic movements across the mat. And that takes very little time. And then after that, the rest of the warm up, I'm a big fan of using stand up, grip breaking, fitting in on both wrestling and judo entries. That's something where you get the cardio up a little bit more, get really truly full body warmed up. And it's a useful skill. You know, fitting in on a single leg, you don't even need to finish it. 
just the skill of building an angle, getting it on the single leg or, or getting good at your judo fit-ins, those are useful skills and it's a full body thing. So the whole process, in my opinion, shouldn't take more than about 10 minutes. That's enough time to get your body warmed up and have some actually useful things for overall jujitsu and then move on, move on to the class. That's what I would consider your normal everyday class warm-up. For my own personal warm-up, sometimes I actually like to warm up a bit with the controlled articular rotations and then a bit of yoga. Like if I'm having trouble with my hips or back, the yoga is actually way more important to me than doing you know, any of the line type stuff or doing any of the stand-up. Some basic yoga movements are, have been right. really beneficial to me. What are you doing now? I know you were at ATT Watertown, New York for quite some time, right? Can you tell us about your time there and what you were doing there and what's going on with you now? Yeah, so I was and kind of still am head instructor there. Even though I've moved halfway across the country, I'm still keeping in touch with them. I'm still going to be going back up there. I just went up there a couple of weeks ago to hand out a couple of blue belts. They're still kind of officially my home school, so to speak. We ended up moving Oklahoma City area. We're uh, a bit northeast of the city. I'm actually right now, my training is at Redline Jiu-Jitsu with uh, Ty Gay. I've actually been friends with him for quite a while. There's a pretty good crew down here. I like the, cool. I like the area and the Jiu-Jitsu here is, is real good. Can you talk about your time at um, ATT Watertown? What was that academy like? You know, when I was coming up through the ranks, it was a very traditional survival of the fittest style. There was an MMA orientation. We had a lot of guys that were doing amateur and, and starting into pro fighting. It was a really good environment for tough people, but there was a lot of attrition. It was something where it's not the best environment if you're just looking to be a recreational player because you're going up against people that are trying to take your head off all the time. Right. So, I mean, if you could if you could mentally handle it, it was a great environment and my skills progressed rapidly in that environment. That's one of the things about jujitsu is it's very difficult to say, oh yeah, this person's going to be here for you know the next 10 or 20 years. It's not uncommon to see all these mixed heritages and, and such in jujitsu. And that's kind of like where we ended up. Right after I got my brown belt, I was basically handed the entire program. You know, and at that point it became what I wanted it to be. So we kind of adjusted things to be a little bit more average person friendly, which worked out really well for us. Uh, it grew the program quite a bit. Uh, it's, it's a nice size. We got a lot of military guys. We're right next to a military base, Fort Drum. That's been great having guys come in from all different areas. And then we get to send our jujitsu out to all different areas. You know, oh, you're getting stationed in Hawaii. Okay, let me see, you know, let me look at where you can train there. You know, they, they would always ask me, where's a good place to train where I'm headed to? It's been cool in that respect. The only problem with that is that, you know, we'd have these people that would train with us for two or three years, and then they get stationed somewhere else. Right. And it meant there was a lot of white belts on the mat, you know, white uh -huh. and some blue belts. That's gotten better over time because, you know, you still have the locals that come in and, and start training. And so they, they provide that core of people that are like, you know, going up in the ranks and we get the, the occasional guys come in from military or, hmm. you know, new jobs in that area where they come in as a blue belt or a purple belt. And those guys, every, everybody's welcome with open arms, but it's always nice to have more colored belts on the mats, obviously. Yeah. And so the culture at Redline, what, what is that like in contrast to uh, Ottertown? There's a very heavy em emphasis on like Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. So there's more emphasis on, you know, don't get hit. 
which turns out are really good principles for even sport jujitsu. Just not allowing somebody to grab on around your neck or your head is a good fundamental idea. That was actually one of the things Henry Akins is from this area. And I learned from him back in 2013, I was purple belt and I did a, like a week long seminar with him. And it was very interesting because he was showing all these principles of jujitsu from a self-defense perspective, but the rules that you learned from the self-defense perspective actually worked out really well for sport. Yes, there's more things that you can technically do in sport because you can't get hit in the face. However, at a fundamental level, just the basic habits that you develop, you know, if somebody can slap you in the face, you weren't controlling them. A slap in the face or, or a punch is actually a good proxy for, do you have control of them or not? Mm. You know, so if, if you aren't monitoring their hands, if, if you can control their hands, they can't grapple with you effectively. So the self-defense principles actually have a very deep appreciation for the self-defense principles and even from a, a sport context. And while it was never something that I emphasized in my own teaching, like, okay, we're going to do striking as part of our jujitsu today. It's nice to be someplace that does take that into consideration because it is a valuable thing. And I think for the average person, it's good to be aware of those principles, to be aware of, you know, okay, yeah, we're doing jujitsu. Yeah, we're doing sport jujitsu, but there's no harm in incorporating the self-defense principles. It's nice to be someplace that is very, very serious about that. Yeah, I mean, most people are focused on strictly sport, mm -hmm. but I think if you delve down into the self-defense principles, you can see why it's so important to take seriously in your jujitsu training. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, teaching style because I really like your teaching style. People, if you don't know, you, you got to see some of Paul's videos online. We'll get to that in a bit, but I, you have an interesting way of simplifying the way breaks of every joint are mm -hmm. sort of made. Can you expand on that a bit? You're maybe the second person I've ever heard talk about like a extension rotation. Can you just expand on that? Sure. So there's a, boy, there's a number of different facets on that, but the in the end, when you talk about submissions, everybody knows the breaking mechanics. You know, if you're doing an arm bar, you know that you're bending the elbow backwards until it basically breaks. You know, if you're doing a heel hook, you're trying to attack the ACL. If you're doing a Kimura, you're trying to rotate the arm so that the shoulder breaks. The breaking mechanics are explicitly taught. Where it gets interesting is the stressing mechanics. There's other mechanics that we can add to the joint that will stress it and make the breaking mechanics more efficient. So the way that I like to describe this in general is like if you put your fists together, right? So your, your arms are horizontal. Your fist together represents a joint. So if, if you move your hands up and down and keep your elbows in the same place, that's a bend in that joint. And any joint that can bend in that way is susceptible to being bent too far. You know, knee bars, arm bars, that kind of thing. Straight ankle locks. You know, so by bending something beyond what it can bear, that's just like, you know, moving that joint at your hands. So another way that we can break a joint is we can twist it, right? And that's like, if you keep your arms lined up, but you just twist them against each other so that your knuckles are kind of grinding against each other. That's the things like the Americanas, Camoras, Omoplatas, or heel hooks, things where we're explicitly trying to twist the joint where they can possibly twist, right? Our joints want to be stable. So by bending it too far or by twisting it too far, we're taking it beyond its, you know, its designed limit. And that's, that's where our you know, main breaking mechanics come from. But there's more ways that the, the joint can move. So again, back to that example, if we take our hands and pull them apart from each other, you're separating or expanding the joint. And that is something that it's very difficult to pull a joint apart. You can't just pull somebody's arm off of their body. There's, there's too much connective tissue. It's too strong. Other than being like you know, drawn and quartered or something, you're just not pulling the joints apart. 
-hmm. but it does stress the joints so that when you if you pulled apart a bit and then start to twist you find that you've taken up all the slack and you need much much less twist to get the job done same thing for mm -hmm. the bending brakes if you can twist the joint first and then bend it beyond where it's supposed to go it's actually a lot more effective one of my favorite examples of that is a triangle arm bar where you have somebody in a triangle they posture up and the triangle is going to get hard well if you twist their arm uh, you rotate their hand all the way to the outside almost like you're trying to do a wrist lock when you apply the braking mechanics on top of those twisting stressing mechanics it's far more persuasive you'll get the tap a lot faster and what happens it's kind of interesting when you well, let me finish the, the, the final mechanic is obviously compressing together, right? And that one's a little bit more rare. But for example, a knee bar, if you have a knee bar, it's like you're trying to push their foot towards their hip. It makes for a stronger braking mechanic. They feel the pressure a lot earlier. And all these stressing mechanics, they feel them much, much earlier in the process. And that gives them more warning that something bad is going on. Which is one of the things I like about thinking about these breaking and stressing mechanics is that when you apply the stressing mechanics, invariably, the person gets a lot more warning that something is going on. They have a better sense that I should be thinking about tapping. And then the breaking mechanics are like this really, really small motion. If my stressing mechanics are good, my breaking mechanics should only be a movement of about an inch. You know, so if I have to twist their arm a lot on the Americana or the Kimura, if I have to move their elbow more than an inch or so, well, then my stressing mechanics weren't good enough. And that applies to every joint lock. If I take those stressing mechanics seriously, not only am I giving the person more warning that something bad is about to happen, but I'm also typically giving a situation where it's safer, right? Because they're getting more warning, it's safer. And I can then also have more control. When you add that additional pressure, like every time I do, and let's say I'm doing an armbar from mount, you know, do the normal 101 arm bar. You know, you, you get up to the shoulders, get into your ass mount, and you go back. Well, what I do is instead of just like grabbing onto their wrist with both my hands, I hug the arm, grab the hand, and I try to literally pull their arm off of their body. And that expands the elbow joint, and then my back shouldn't hit the mat. They are tapping somewhere before my back hits the mat. And that's because the stressing mechanics are strong, which is making the braking mechanics more efficient. They get more warning. And I also am in a situation where if I do have to let go, it's actually a lot easier. So we've got this nice way of making it safer because we're giving them more warning, but we're also, a lot of times when we're applying these stressing mechanics, we're actually engaging ourselves more tightly on the person, making it harder for them to escape. If I'm pulling on their arm, well, pretty much by definition, my hips are going to have a tendency to move towards their shoulders which we know on that style of armbar is a good thing. And it pretty much works that way on everything. You know, if, I, if I'm doing a Kimura from closed guard, I focus on trying to pull the arm right off the joint, right? I don't do the Kimura from closed guard, the, the standard way where you get off to the side, build an mm -hmm. angle, and then try to twist the arm off of their body. I actually keep them in my closed guard. So that what I can do is I can extend their hips away from me with my legs. I maintain a tight control of their arm, and that tends to move their elbow up in line with their body, which stresses the joint enormously so that when it comes time to actually do the rotation all i have to do is just move my shoulders just a little bit to the side nice. and i have got a very good submission the other nice thing about focusing on these stressing mechanics yeah it just keeps going and going mm -hmm. the other nice thing about the stressing mechanics is the more seriously you take them the easier it is to deal with the people that are hyper flexible have you ever run into somebody where you try to americana them and they basically yeah. just kind of laugh at you and say oh yeah nobody can americana me totally yeah so 
I don't have that problem. I do things in a way that if I don't get the standard stressing mechanics, like for example, you know, pulling their elbow onto their waist, you know, and for the Americana, in order to maximize the stress, it's almost like I'm trying to bring their wrist to the lat and their elbow towards their sternum. Americanas and Kimuras, if the arm is in front of the body, they're a lot stronger. You know, think V-locks, um, doing uh, submissions from like a back triangle. These situations where their arm is in front of their body, they have much less range of motion, which is going to additionally stress that joint. So anything, anything that it adds additional stress to the joint, it puts them in a position where it's harder for them to escape and the submissions are just a lot easier. So if you get, if you get somebody who's like super, super flexible, you focus on the stressing mechanics. And if a particular set of stressing mechanics aren't working, okay, let's switch to a different one. So like on the Americana, you know, doing all the things where, you know, I do all the technique exactly the way that I should. If it's still not working, okay. So my stressing mechanics here, I was trying to, you know, we've got some rotation going on. We've got some, some bending things back, but it turns out that on the Americana, another way that you can stress the joint is you can say, you know what, rather than trying to, you know, add more additional twists to the joint, let's try directly bending the joint. So what I'll do is on somebody who's hyper flexible, I'll actually put my wrist underneath their shoulder, like almost like I'm trying to insert right into the joint. And then it's still a bit of a figure four on my own grip, but because I'm bending the shoulder now, they're used to resisting twisting on the shoulder, but now I'm bending the shoulder over top of my own wrist. Mm. And even hyper flexible people, as soon as their hand gets anywhere close to the mat, now all of a sudden they're tapping. You know, so it's still an Americana, it's still attacking the shoulder, but because I added different stressing mechanics, it was something where, oh, this stressing mechanic doesn't quite work, maybe you can substitute another one, right? like a knee bar. Improving your mobility and recovery will only benefit your BJJ, and as such, we highly recommend you try Yoga for BJJ at yogaforbjj.net. Use our code FWB, all uppercase FWB, to get 20% off your subscription, yogaforbjj.net. A knee bar, you can stress the mechanic. The stressing mechanics are typically going to be either expansion or compression of the joint. You can pull on the foot, but you can also push it towards the hip. And if you are in a position where, let's say, you just barely have control of the knee, well, pushing on the foot isn't going to make sense. In that case, pulling on it is going to be something that is is going to work really well. So we've got like this palette of options, right? And like I said, you know, I've got these four different ways that the joint moves, the way that I think about it. We've got the bending, the twisting, the expansion and compression, and that's your palette. And if something's not working, you can say, okay, well, what else can I add from that palette? You know, like a knee bar, you can, you could twist it. It does help the braking mechanics a little bit, but it's not as effective as the expansion or compression. Yeah, and, and the list just kind of goes on and on. So once you start thinking about the submissions more as where the braking mechanics, where the stressing mechanics, and what is my palette of options, you can actually get pretty creative with your jujitsu while still following very simple rules. So whenever I'm teaching any submissions, one of the things that I always try to call out is, this is the breaking mechanics. But then I also point out, okay, well, let's take these stressing mechanics. Let's try to make these stressing mechanics as strong as possible. And then once people get used to thinking about in those terms, then all of a sudden, you know, you can almost safely make up new submissions. Again, because if you, if you stress the stressing mechanics, if you look at that first, you're, all you're doing is just controlling somebody. By definition, you aren't breaking somebody with stressing mechanics. So if you spend your time doing that, you can be very creative and reduce the risks of being creative. You're right. The math applies to whatever, right? Hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, they're all just joints. It's a limited number of ways that the joint can move. So it's just a matter of saying, well, what's possible? You know, what control can I apply with my body for this particular situation? And how can I apply the most of my body as possible to this particular submission? Whenever we're doing a submission, we want to have as much of our body involved in that submission as possible. And that's one of the funny things about, you know, the way that I do things. A lot of times you'll see me doing a submission. It'll look like I'm straining quite a bit because I'm, the stressing mechanics are harder to apply you're going to use more strength to apply those stressing mechanics. But then the breaking mechanics are just a little tiny step above that. So I'll look like I'm doing a lot of work sometimes by focusing on these stressing mechanics. I'm using, I'm trying to use my whole body. I'm trying to stress the joint as much as possible, but not actually break it. And then by the time I get around to breaking it, it doesn't actually look like I did anything. You know, it's, if you, if you look at it on video, it looks like, you know, there's maybe even no movement at all. For me, that's an ideal submission is when you're looking at it from the outside and you're like, I didn't think that was quite there. Or it, it didn't look like, you know, anything was actually happening. It just looked like this one little tiny extra movement and everything threatened to blow up. That's the way I approach all joint locks mm -hmm. is through that breaking and stretching mechanics and, and exploring the different ways that they interplay together. And for context, people, we will add Paul's links to, I would say the Globetrotter videos of Two of them that you have. Um, one is fantastic, where you have this this woman that you are demoing on, <laughs> hyper flexible, and you're doing some of this yeah. Kimura stuff on her. And it's really interesting to see you adjust not only the extension rotation, but also like you're actually moving the arm forward or upwards. And then another example, your style of getting the Kimura from like what typically what people would think is like a sit up type of Kimura is where you're you're grabbing the elbow almost, and you're sort mm -hmm. of rotating it. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah, even, even that, just to get into position, again, I, I want to use as much of my body as possible. I don't want to focus on what I ought to be focusing on. So like in that case, I'm focusing on how do I get control of the arm? And I don't want to fight with her torso. I don't want to fight their head. These are things that if I start trying to fight that, I'm probably going to lose. Whereas if I can just control the arm and put as much force as I can into manipulating that arm to where I want it to be, the setups are easier. Let's talk about students. What makes a great jujitsu student? What makes a good student is not being afraid of failure, of being able to fail and look at it as an opportunity to learn. That means that they're not going to get discouraged. It means that they are going to look for solutions to problems. Um, how somebody deals with failure is a really good indicator of how good of a student they're going to be. Mm -hmm. And the people that don't deal with failure well, those are the ones that just need a little bit more work. You need mm -hmm. to you need to give them a little bit more guidance to understand that failure is a good thing. That failing is not a reflection of your worth. Mm -hmm. It's a reflection of how much effort are you putting in. And we want to, you know, if we want jujitsu to be something that the average person can do, we have to make sure that we are being understanding what their goals are. You know, we're we're trying to you know take them as a student and help them understand more of what jujitsu can do for them. No matter what they bring to the table. As long as they understand that jujitsu can be useful and that it can be practical for what they bring to the table and they are okay with failing and getting their butts handed to them all the time to start out with, as long as they can say to themselves, you know what, I can see that once I learn this stuff, that skill really is the most important thing and that I can do this, then that makes a good student. You can teach that student anything. Hmm. I know early on when I started, I thought it was all about winning. I thought that's what you needed in order yeah. to get your blue belt and, you know. Well, sure, it's natural. Stuff. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, if you don't mind high attrition, that works. It automatically separates out the people that can't handle losing. It separates the people that 
are, are not going to work extra hard uh, because it is hard. If you're in training and you're trying to win all the time, mm-hmm. you're going to be getting injured more often. You're going to be, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to be comparing yourself to everybody else on the mat. You know, you, you, everybody knows what the packing order is. Everybody knows who's better than who else. And that's, that's not the healthiest environment. It's an effective environment, but it's not a healthy environment. To an extent, it seems like, because then you have a narrow range of, of weaponry, like perhaps you only have one sort of you know, killing stroke, so to speak, right? As opposed to like yeah. an array of things, you know, developed. That's what I, that's what I found, that I had one thing well, that yeah. worked a bunch until it didn't work anymore. Yeah. And, and then you would move on to the next thing and that would feel like progress. But there, your sparring is to prove yourself. It's not to improve yourself. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's absolutely true. You should be... Yeah. When you're training, when you're rolling, when you're when you're interacting with other people on the mat, the goal should be how do we learn from this scenario? And just trying to kill each other, it works, but it takes a long time and there's high attrition and there's injuries and it, it doesn't put you in the right mental state because what happens if all of your A game stops working where somebody far superior to you comes in and they just wipe the floor with you? Well, now you're not winning and you've just been shown that these years of training that you did are in effect garbage. And if your only goal is to win, well, that's not going to put you in a very good mental state. Whereas if you don't mind the failure, if, you, if you're if you training to improve yourself and the others around you, you're resilient to anything. It, do, right. it doesn't matter what happens. How do we save those people? Because I, I hate to give up on them. How can we cut it off so that they do blossom as opposed to just yeah. leave it all behind? Right. So it, it depends on where they're at in their jujitsu. Right. The people that are just starting out, the guys that think that they can just get in there and end winning is all that matters. A pretty big chunk of them, I can basically get them on the mat and I can do two things. One, I'll just roll like I'm a dead fish on them and they can't do anything to me. You know, I'll give them specific goals. Okay. All you have to do is get the side control mm-hmm. and I'm moving slow. I'm doing, you know, hardly any work and they can't do it. And they're, they're gasping for air. They're using all this energy. And then afterwards I can say, okay, was what you did effective? Here I am, I'm able to talk normally, I'm obviously not using energy, and you're you're going nuts. Is going as hard as you can effective? And a lot of times they'll be like, yeah, no, that didn't really do anything for me. Another angle on those hyper-aggressive guys is sometimes, if they don't get that first lesson, I have to play the mat enforcer game. You have to show them, okay, this is what jiu-jitsu is capable of, and you can't do anything about it. It is a little bit of that beatdown mentality, and sometimes that is necessary. Sometimes it is necessary to show people what reality is so that they don't think, oh, well, I'm winning against this black belt. You know, sometimes they need to understand that, well, the black belt's playing. The black belt is just letting you move around. If the black belt turns it on, you're going to hate life. And I tell my students, it's like, if you want to test yourself, if you want to roll with me and, you know, have me in complete black belt mode and you do everything that you can, you know, all submissions legal, sure, we can do that but I guarantee that neither one of us are going to enjoy it. I'm not going to enjoy it because I'm not learning anything. It's really not a challenge. They're not going to enjoy it because I'm not going to be nice. I'm going to show them what jujitsu is capable of. And the people that get through that process, and again, it's very important to talk to them afterwards and say, okay, here's what you did. Here were the consequences of what you did. Do you think your approach is a good way to train? Do you think you're going to get to where I am by training the way that you're training? And man, most of the time they realize that they aren't as tough or good or just naturally talented or whatever. They realize that what they're bringing to the table isn't all that much. And then they, they start being willing to listen. And where you shape them from there, that's where you know, the individual coaches 
if you're trying to build a competition team, well, now that, they, that they're convinced that you know what you're talking about and you can guide them, and if they want to be hardcore competitors, well, yeah, you're going to treat them harder. You're going to put them a little bit more through a ringer, but they're prepared for that. You know, the average person, now we can say, okay, well, what is the best way to learn? What situations can we set up where everybody can learn? And that goes from, not just from class, but also through the open mats. As an example, I'll take my lower belts, I'll roll with them for a bit, and you know, they may not be successful, as is expected, but it'll get to a point where I'll say, okay, look, you're going to submit me now. I don't know how you're going to submit me, but you are absolutely 100% going to submit me if you do things correctly. If you don't do things correctly, if you're just constantly making mistakes, you won't submit me. But if you transition, you take advantage of the opportunities that I give you, and you get into a, a position where it is legitimately hard for me to escape, you're going to submit me, and you should. And once they see that you can get effective training, everybody's willing to tap, everybody's willing to put themselves in a situation where it doesn't matter who their training partner is, whether a white belt or a black belt, where we say, it's okay to tap, it's okay to effectively plan to lose when that is the stated goal. We want to learn. And by saying, yes, everybody taps, everybody, you know, even when there's a wild skill mismatch, we're going to set up a situation where the tap is going to happen. That changes the mindset. Now it's not about winning because it's not a case where you have to do everything you can to get that submission and you, and you feel like, oh, I beat that person. It's more a case of, oh, I did things in a technically sound way and coach gave me opportunities. I took advantage of them. Now maybe I can do this on somebody that's lower level without them giving me those opportunities on purpose. So you will be explicit about it because so, it sounded earlier on like you're talking to that guy by saying... Hey, do you think this is working? That yeah, look at the results. To, as well, as opposed to something like, hey, I want you to come back tomorrow. Failing is part of the process. You see what I'm saying? Like one is sort of this questioning approach and the other one's more explicit. Do you use both? How do you go about yeah, it? It, 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 just, it, it just depends on what's contextual. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so you've, you've got the people that walk in that are hyper aggressive. And a lot of times they're the ones that they need to be honestly made to feel a little bit foolish. They need, they need to feel like no matter how good they think they are, it's still not enough. The other end of the spectrum is the people who don't think they can do it. They don't think that they've, they've got enough. But the thing is, is those people, by giving them opportunities and saying, by doing this in a technical way, you'll be successful. And yeah, I'm giving you these opportunities now, but eventually the same progression is what you can use against somebody who's completely resisting as well. So it gives them more confidence that there is a way for them to do things that will be successful. And that long term, they'll be able to do it against ever increasing resistance. So, you know, whichever end of the spectrum they're on, these things of explicitly showing the benefits of jujitsu, you know, either showing that you can't possibly bring enough to the table to overcome skill, or no matter what you're bringing to the table right now, the skill can be built so that you are capable of more than you think. Long-term, everybody's capable of more than they think. Short-term, everybody thinks they're more capable than they actually are. I want to talk about simplebjj.com because it's it's such an important and valuable asset, I think, for the community. I've shared, well, first of all, I should state that this is a blog that Paul's been contributing to since the first entries I've seen is 2013. It's so incredibly valuable. I've shared it with some teammates and they've gave me just nothing but positive feedback in terms of like, this is a fantastic resource. Why didn't I know about this and this and that? <laughs> And so I'm glad that it's getting even to a broader audience at this point. And it's funny that we were talking a lot about this, the last topic of failure and stuff, because your most recent entry is uh, how to ride the line of failure, correct? Yeah, the, the, the entire website, in a lot of ways, it's the things that I talk to my students about, you know, the, the coaching advice and saying, okay, here's, here's the principles of jujitsu. I mean, there was a lot of technique videos that I put on early on. 
but they were mostly just classroom videos so that students, you know, if they missed a class, they could review it and I could explain things in more detail than what I did in class. As time moved on, the videos I didn't feel were as useful and I enjoyed writing about jujitsu more than like showing particular techniques. Mm -hmm. So over time, there was a lot more things that I wrote that weren't necessarily about particular techniques, but they were more about how to think about jujitsu, how to get more out of your training, how to, you know, help other people in jujitsu. And most of those articles stemmed out of either things that I was in the process of discovering or things that I was trying to communicate to other people. And, and I found that writing it gave me an opportunity to put it together in a logical format where I could say, okay, here's the thing that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Here's all of the things why you care about, you know, what I'm saying is indeed true. And, you know, here's the proof. And then saying, okay, here's what you do with it. And pretty much all the articles in that kind of expository format where I want people to get something out of it that they can get active use out of, that they can use hopefully for the rest of their jujitsu career. I mean, you can also look at it as a manual, so to speak. I mean, the categories speak yeah. for themselves. You have whole sections on attacks, classes, control, defense, escape, observations, position, submit, transition, and then right. you have an uncategorized section. Your thoughts on that? It's the software engineer in me. I want to keep things organized. I want to I want to have it be something where I can point somebody at a particular subtopic of jujitsu and say, here, just go look at this, read everything that I have on the website. It's almost like I'm writing a book for jujitsu, but over the span of like 10 years here. <laughs> You know, most of the articles on there have withstood the test of time. I don't write about anything unless I've thought about it. I've talked to other black belts about it. So I feel everything on there has pretty well stood the test of time. And it's something that I think they're timeless subjects. Yeah. Um, that, that's what I enjoy most about jujitsu is, you know, all the different techniques are cool and mm -hmm. it's neat to be able to do all these different things in jujitsu. But I think knowing how to think about jujitsu is just, it's a more effective, more pleasant thing for me to spend my time on. I mean, I like doing the crazy stuff. It's fun to pull that stuff out and, and punk on people and all that. But in the end, what I really want in jujitsu is I want to discover what really matters. I want to discover the things that can help amplify people's jujitsu with very little input. Because I mean, how many times have you had a coach tell you something and you're like, that completely changes everything. It sends you down this path where now all of a sudden any plateau that you had, it's gone. You're thinking about jujitsu in a new way. Those kinds of concepts. Every time that I experience them, it's like, ah, I want to I wanna help other people with this. Mm. I mean, I'll never forget one of the first times in jiu-jitsu that I had that happen, Phil Migueries came in for a seminar. And it was, it was basically, it was, it was like at the end, and he was asking if anybody had any questions. And I don't even remember what I was going to ask the question about. It doesn't really matter. I was going to ask about technique. But I led with, I like side control. And he's like, all right, stop right there. What do you mean you like side control? I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> you know, I was like, <laughs> I, was like uh, I think I was a blue belt at the time. And I'm like, well... I feel comfortable with the attacks here. I can. I feel like I can maintain it. And he's like, okay, well, what do, what do you have to attack? Ah, uh, okay. And, and of course, the whole time I'm sweating. Now I'm sweating bullets. Sure. Like, okay, well, I, I've got some chokes that I like to do here. I've got, you know, I can attack this arm. He says, okay, go mount. All right. He says, now what do you have to attack? Well, I've got, I've got the chokes. So I can attack both arms. He's like, so you have more targets now, don't you? Yeah. So, you know, why would you want side control instead of mount? I'm like, well, yeah, actually, that makes a lot of sense. Why not get good at something where I have more opportunities to attack, where I have more stuff that I can that I can focus on? And it was like, well, this makes a lot of sense. And, and that, that concept of the, that was a really concrete example of how advancing your positional hierarchy can give you more options and your opponent less options. You know, going to the back, in a way, you have less options, but your opponent has way less options. 
Hmm. You know, so, you know, you can do a rear naked choke. You got, you know, lapel stuff that you can do, but all of their defense is in front of them and all of your offense is towards their back. You put yourself in an ideal position. So this, this whole thing of starting from, well, why would you like side control as opposed to mount? Why would you even say, I like this? And right. it was an eye-opening moment for my jujitsu. Anytime I have something like that happen, I would like to re-communicate it, or I would like to develop my own ideas about jujitsu that, you know, maybe I haven't seen presented and help people. I, I would like people to have things that they can use for the rest of their jujitsu career. And, and I'm primarily focused on like white and blue belts. But I mean, like this, this last one that I put up, I had a, a black belt friend of mine. He's like, yeah, I sent this to a bunch of my students. It was awesome. And that's like, all right, cool. I want something that is useful at all levels if you're really bothered to think about it, but it can really supercharge what the white belts and blue belts need. It can it can set them on a path that makes the rest of their jujitsu easier. Mm. Do you think we can accelerate the, uh, or we have accelerated the learning time students to reach even black belt? Thing is, we have a lot more information available to us than we ever did before. 10 years ago, we were still buying random DVDs and books and, and trying to work this stuff out on our own. Now there's a lot more good and bad stuff out there. There's a lot more communicating with basically experts in the field. So in just a raw low level, okay, here's techniques, here's how we do them. There's a lot more of that now than there ever used to be. That being said, the way that we learn jujitsu, I think it's lagging. I think there's things where standard, you know, pedagogical techniques, you know, of, of studying how people learn and skill acquisition, all these things like spaced repetition. There's a lot of the things that don't really get used as much as they should. You know, most places that you go, okay, here's the technique of the day. It fits into jujitsu as this piece. We're going to work it until you get good at it. And, you know, most of the time they never touch it again, or at least not for a very long time, maybe six months, 12 months before you, you do anything with that technique again. And so people forget it, you know, if it happens to stick, it sticks, but it's not an effective way to learn. Whereas, for example, the way that I do my white to blue belt classes, we switched over to a format where every single class throughout the week was actually the same class. This week, we would be working on Americanas and Camoras from side control. And that's all we would do all week. And so the people, their first class, whether they came in Monday or Tuesday, whatever the first class was, was just getting familiar with the technique. And then as their second class would be the reminder, okay, this is how, okay, this is the trouble that I'm having with it right now. Okay, let's let's make that correction. Incorporating things like effortful recall, you know, basically telling the student, okay, show me the technique. Where I'm not even going. I'm not even going to talk about it yet. I want everybody to show it to me. And they do it. They make mistakes. But when they make mistakes, we could correct them, and it's a lot easier to remember them. If you're if you're trying to remember all the details, maybe you miss one or two, but then it gets filled in. It's a lot easier to remember. There's all these like you know brain science things that I don't think we're taking fully advantage of. We're not looking at jujitsu as efficiently as it gets done in other sports domains. It's getting there. There's a more awareness of it than there used to be. But it's too easy to basically say, oh, yeah, you know a lot about jujitsu. Go teach people. And it can work. I mean, just like a, a bad training environment, it can work. It's not the best way to train, but it can work. You know, the way that we're learning jujitsu is the same way. Yes, it can work. We can do things that way, but it takes longer than it ought to. If we approach it more from, you know, the science of learning and skill acquisition, mm -hmm. then I think we'd be doing a lot better. And it, it's, it's coming. It's not there yet. But jujitsu is such a laid back culture and, you know, everybody's yeah. willing to teach and, and you don't have to have any formal certification or anything like that. It's, you know, it's both, it's both good and bad. It, it's, it's good because jujitsu likes to evolve. It's bad because it takes a long time to get good that way. You can do it, just take a long time. 
And the other thing that I think is kind of lacking is having a more organized jujitsu. That was one of the reasons that I originally started categorizing things on my website was that I felt like the organization of jujitsu wasn't there. Unless you knew all the terms, unless you knew all of the details of what you're trying to learn, it was hard to find more information about it. So, you know, looking on YouTube, it's like, if you don't know what an Americana is, I mean, how do you even begin to describe that? You know, how do you understand that the Americana joint lock mechanics are the same thing as the V-lock, just applied from a different situation? Or that a Kimura and an plot are closely related as far as how the joint mechanics are concerned? We don't have anything like that. There's some informal stuff. You know, there's there's people that attempt to organize jujitsu by classifying a position. I mean, this is logical. It makes sense. You know, classify it by a position. You classify it by what's the situation that we're in. And that's functional. But I, th- I think it can go a lot farther than that. And that's something that for myself and, you know, what I want to you know, eventually bring to jujitsu, I think that's one of the areas that we can have the most bang for the buck is by getting jujitsu a bit more organized and a bit more cross-linked and a little bit more into, you know, honest goodness, brain science, it'll get there. It's on its way, but it's not, it's definitely not there yet. It seems like the latest, like new enhancements to jujitsu have been sort of the bolting on of uh, wrestling, number one, incorporation of wrestling and uh, the new modalities of strength training that's been all the rage as well. And um, things like mobility as well, the, those type of things. But I rarely hear anyone talk about like the the science of learning. I mean, there's some talk about the science of teaching, which could be hand in hand, but I rarely yeah. hear it about the other the other way around. Yeah. And I mean, don't forget, I mean, wrestling has been part of jujitsu for a long, long time. It's just not what's been emphasized. There's always in jujitsu, there's always these phases. And when you talk to the old school black belts, the guys that have been in the game for a long time, they're like, yeah, everybody wants to act like, you know, this little subsection of jujitsu is somehow newer, like adding in wrestling or adding in judo or adding in heel hooks or adding this or that. They want to act like it's like it's new. And no, there's like different periods where sure. different aspects of the game have been emphasized. You know, when the when everybody was getting more familiar with the leg attacks, well, then all of a sudden the back attacks became more popular. But this has been going on for all of jujitsu. You know, even, you know, like Holes Gracie, you know, he was bringing in different aspects of other things like, you know, the, the Samba and wrestling and, and saying, yeah, jujitsu is great, but if something works somewhere else, why not incorporate it? I think that's one of the most magical things about jujitsu is that it says, if it works, let's incorporate it. And if it works well for somebody that's smaller, even better. If it works well for somebody that's not as strong, that's awesome. Judo, there's, man, that's a very physical sport. I'm not a big fan of training judo. I do, but I don't like it. It tends to be very, very aggressive and you have to, you have to do things with very serious intent, but it should still be incorporated because it works under the right circumstances. Judo is the right answer, right? And it's that way for all of jujitsu. And every time something new comes along or, you know, pseudo new, you know, people rediscover things all the time. If it works, great. Let's, let's incorporate it. Let's look through the context where it makes sense. Like we said at the beginning, the context matters. The mm-hmm. context of where we're applying things, if you really want to understand jujitsu, you have to take into consideration the context. You know, drawing back to the example of the knee bar, there was something that was another one of those aha moments for me. I did a seminar with Eric Paulson and he was showing the knee bar and he showed to compress the knee. I'm like, okay, cool. That was like, you know, the very start of thinking about the stressing mechanics and how they could how they could help out was doing an Eric Paulson seminar. And then at one of the Globetrotters camps, 
Jay Pages was showing a knee bar and he was expanding the joint. Here's these two world-class black belts saying two different things for the same submission. They gave two different stressing mechanics and that bugged me a lot. And I actually had to go to another black belt, Corler Gracie. He was helping me out with how to think about this stuff. And I'm like, this is really bugging me because here's two guys that know what they're talking about and they're giving me two different sets of advice for the knee bar. How do I resolve this dilemma? I don't think either one of them are wrong. So where's the scenario where they're both right? Well, okay, so it's got to be something about the context and it may be nothing more than what's the relationship of where the knee is on your body. If you are shallow on the knee, it makes a lot more sense to expand the joint and pull yourself into the submission. Whereas if you're already fully engaged and you're clamped on, the compression mechanics are actually pretty strong. And in that scenario where you're not at risk of losing the knee, you can do that compression. Whereas like, you know, maybe the foot's starting to get a little bit above your head, it would be hard to expand the joint. So by taking into consideration the context, we can square these circles and, and, and figure out how both things can be true. Now, I'd be remiss if I don't talk to you about the Ezekiel. <laughs> because uh, your Ezekiel is interesting. You know, I, I've seen in the beginning, everyone's just digging those fingers in to get that, that yeah. fabric in your sleeve. And you don't do that. And also you do this thing where you get your temple to like the edge of someone's eye socket, the orbital. And yeah, you, you shoot your leg up to avoid the roll, even use it from standing. Honestly, my Ezekiel is a little bit embarrassing to me because I've had almost as many wins in competition with the Ezekiel as I've had with the rear naked choke. It's a little bit weird to me how many Ezekiels that I've gotten in both competition and training. But a lot of it stems from when I first started jujitsu, I was trained in these like nasty cheap judo geese that had you know sleeves a mile wide. And right, so the Ezekiels right. are super easy in that. And it's a cheap and easy submission against people that don't know what they're doing or don't know that the Ezekiel is coming on. Hmm. But after a while, you know, just like anything else, like you were saying, you know, eventually your A game stops working and you have to start saying, okay, well, what do I have to do to modify this? I didn't want to abandon the Ezekiel, but I wanted to look at it in terms of, okay, well, how can I, what are the ways that people can defend this and how can I get around those defenses? The number one way to defend the Ezekiel for me is the arm that is going in front and doing the choking. If I can elevate that elbow above my own head, the Ezekiel is not happening. They don't have an angle where they can apply the choke. They can't get access to one side of the carotid. They can't get efficient access to my airway. All they've got is potentially one side of a blood choke. And that's just not enough to get the job done. And, I, and actually, that was one of the things where I didn't even have to think about the Ezekiel's all that much with these cheap judo keys. I could just slap it on, get it, you know, threaten to rip their head off and be done. But then somebody did that to me. They, I don't know if they knew what they were doing, but they just, they found something that worked. And I'm like, Wow, that's really bugging me. So if they can defend by elevating my elbow up there, maybe I need to move my elbow into a position where they can't manipulate it that way. So then I started doing my Ezekiels instead of like this extending your arm and getting almost like your almost like a like a weird cross collar choke situation. Instead of that, I focused on bringing my elbow down to the center line. Now they don't have access to my elbow, so they can't push that up and away. And I've also got the ability once your arms in front of you like that. You can actually get more of your body when you're mount. You can just by pushing up into it with your body, you can get more effective mechanics on that choke. The other way that people can defend, they can turn their head, you know, again, denying access to one side of the blood choke. So there was a situation of, okay, well, they turn their head. My hands are engaged. I can't put my foot on their face. So I have to come up with something else to make this work. And so it became a, a process of going, okay, what is going to cause them to turn their head with the tools I have at hand? 
and by by picking a point on my head that doesn't have a lot of nerve endings and this is really hard and putting it against an area of their head that does have nerve endings and is you know more susceptible to honestly pain i mean it's still mechanically good but most people are turning their head because it hurts really really bad and that gets them to turn their head so every defense ought to have an answer right if you want to get deep into anything in jujitsu on submissions you have to identify all the possible ways that they can defend and you have to have an answer for every single one of those things. And, you know, sometimes it's trial by fire. Everything that I've done on the Ezekiel to add on to just beyond the basic technique, like you're talking about hooking, uh, that kind of like grapevining the leg. Well, people can flip you over. And I mean, if you've got a good Ezekiel, I, I finished one competition match where the guy was mounted on me and I had already set up the Ezekiel. It was on the bottom. He was mount, but my Ezekiel was already set. I choked the guy nearly unconscious and he tapped and my coach, uh, Mark, he was over in the corner. He's like, he, all he could see, I was like facing away. He looks over, the guy like practically falls off of me, can't stand up right away. I sit up and he's like, what happened? Did you tap? And I'm like, no, I, you know, he healed the guy. <laughs> so it's, it's something that, you know, once it's set and you're dealt with all these different situations, like there, you know, rolling over is not ideal, but if you have a way to compensate for it, if you, you know, if you're mount, and they bump you over, yeah, I mean, you can still get it, but it's not as good as being on top. So it's better to say, okay, how did they manage to roll me over and how can I help prevent that? And that comes back into, okay, well, what are my setups? How do I set things up so that I can compensate for all these different defenses? I mean, that's really in any any technique in jiu-jitsu, getting to the black belt level at it is really about responding to all the possibilities of being able to funnel things into a very few known things happening so that when one of two paths happen, you can respond to either one of them instantly. Whereas if you got like the person can do 10 different things, now you got 10 different things that you're trying to track. We want to put somebody in a position where all they can do is something that we can just automatically recognize and execute on without having to think. And the fewer things that are on that list, the better. Let's talk about no gi Ezekiel. You don't have that sleeve. How are you compensating? So some people like, like to do like what amounts to like a rear naked choke style in order to get a blood choke on that. I find that no gi Ezekiel, it's more effective to attack the airway directly. So by making a fist, placing it kind of underneath the chin. I don't want to push down on the airway. What I really want to do is I want to, I want to have the outside of my fist up underneath their chin, mm-hmm. and then I'm reinforcing my fist on my chest so that by pushing forward and into that soft tissue, mm-hmm. I can close off the airway by using my entire body mm-hmm. to push into it. Whereas, you know, trying to punch down into it is just an arm strength thing. We're, we're mm-hmm. trying to get locked into a perfect, you know, blood choking position. It's, it's difficult. And again, if you have access to that, if the other person has access to that elbow, it's very easy to push that up. Whereas if I get my hand in place and I'm reinforcing with my chest, it doesn't really matter all that much if they start to get access to the elbow. I'm on the airway. I'm on mm-hmm. something that I can apply with my chest and not my arm. And when you rely on the arms to finish the Ezekiel, it's not as strong as when you can apply your body. So anything that locks the submission into my own body on the Ezekiel is a good thing. Like I said, the Ezekiel is something that it, it almost got uninteresting to me. I almost never do Ezekiels anymore because it's just like I, I don't really feel like I have all that much to learn. 
So it's, it's like I, I built something that's like a really good A game and then I don't really use it. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, I also test out all defensive stuff. I, I routinely let people try to get Ezekiel's on me to see if there's anything that maybe they bring something interesting and new to the table. I feel like I've thought it out really well, but you never know. It could be that, you know, I've, I've had a bunch of black belts that they would start an Ezekiel on me and I would just do the basic defenses and it would work. Sometimes I'd have to get deeper into the defenses that I know. But so far, I haven't, I haven't had any surprises on the Ezekiel in a number of years. It's one of those like easy gimme classes that I can do if I if I go yeah, traveling uh, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, you, you guys want to learn something? I oh, want to learn the Ezekiel. Okay, here I'll give you yeah. an Ezekiel that is, in my opinion, the best Ezekiel in the world. I've used it against all levels. Here, let's learn this, and I'll also show you how to get out of everybody else's Ezekiels. If you don't do an Ezekiel like I show you, then it's easy to get out of. It's a very easy gimme class. So I got a selfish question about that. Uh, going back to the Nogi Ezekiel, your hand placement, you said you put it on the airway. Are you putting that above the Adam's apple and directly under the chin? Or yeah, it doesn't much. matter. Are you just crushing the whole thing or what? No, I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm really not trying to crush the airway specifically. I don't really want to do that because to attack the trach, I have to push down. Yeah. And it's hard to use my body in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're, when you're mount on somebody. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can't really, you can't put that downward pressure. Their face is in the way. So you're, you're not really going to be able to apply pressure in that direction. Mm-hmm. Whereas if your focus is on pushing up into that soft tissue, mm-hmm. then you've got something where it's a lot breathe. easier to, oh yeah, they can't breathe. If you, if you put enough pressure up there, they yeah. can't breathe either. Literally closes so the airway. It, yeah. Yeah. That's actually, uh, yeah, I could go on and on about this stuff. Cause it's like, that's one of the interesting things about, you know, when you start getting into airway chokes, Chokes are a whole other subject. We, we talked yeah, about yeah. the joint lock, the joint mechanics, <laughs> but I also have a whole bunch of other stuff for the chokes, yeah. obviously. If you push that soft tissue up, it, it'll still close off the airway. And that's really what you're trying to attack. Yeah, there will be some you know, like direct airway trachea involvement. That's not what I'm aiming for. I'm kind of like trying to go in mostly up into their chin and a little bit in. So like, you know, call that maybe a 30 degree angle. It's compelling. When you're using your whole body against it, in some ways, it almost doesn't matter. You just need to reinforce on your chest and push your whole way up in. You know, I've brought up Globetrotters a couple of times. And for people who don't know, Globetrotters is like a global seminar. They go all over the world. They have a, a numerous black belts. It's usually a multi-day event. Uh, they they have single day events and uh, they're fantastic. And Paul happens to be or happens to have been uh, one of those black belts who has given like the hour long lesson or whatever it may be. <laughs> Can you talk about your experience with Globetrotters, how you got involved? Sure. The first Globetrotters camp I went to was, it was the very first camp they did in the USA and it was up in New Hampshire. And, you know, I had kind of loosely known who Globetrotters were. It mostly seemed like this, you know, another exotic vacation jujitsu thing, you know, go to these, these cool places that you've never been to before. But then they had this USA camp where it was like, oh, we're going to go camping in the woods. And uh, I'm like, well, shoot, I, that sounds, that's right up my alley. I like backpacking and stuff. And, you know, it was, you know, 10 people to a bunk and all this kind of thing, but uh-huh. there was no distractions. There was no going out to party at night or anything like that. I wasn't really interested in, in like, you know, bar hopping or any of the other social things. I just wanted to do mm-hmm. jujitsu all day long. So I went to my first one and I did every single class, every single open mat. It was brutal. 
I mean, wow, just crazy. crushingly brutal. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. Yes, it was crazy. And they, they explicitly tell people not to attempt that. People yeah. try to do it all the time, and they tell you, yeah. don't do it. But it, it is kind of fun. It's almost like this kind of Iron Man thing to see if you can yeah. <laughs> do it. But I loved it. And I got exposed to all these different black belts and all these different techniques and all these different ways of looking at jujitsu. And I also got an opportunity to to hang out with these same black belts and, and, the, and the other people at the camps and, and talk about jujitsu. And it was a really good environment because you've got all these people that are coming from all these different backgrounds, all these different schools, all these different approaches to jujitsu, but they were all coming together for the explicit purpose of getting together and doing jujitsu. It wasn't about, oh, well, this team is doing this, that team is doing that. It was just, let's just throw everybody in a pot and have fun. And that was just such a, a cool, refreshing, novel thing to me that after that first one, after recovering for a few days, I, like right afterwards, I'm like, wow, I don't know if I can ever do that again because I was stupid. But after a couple of days, I was like, this is actually a really cheap way to get exposed to a lot of very, very good jujitsu and to have a lot of fun while doing it. And the farther you get into these camps and we're, you know, nobody's trying to take each other's heads off. You know, everybody's laid back, relaxed. All the black belts are super friendly. It's a really good environment. You can bring your A game. You can go in there and try out these things that you're like, okay, let's see if this is going to work. And people, by and large, they aren't going to get hurt. We're not trying to kill each other. We're all playing with jujitsu. It's been a really good environment that I, I wholeheartedly recommend to everybody. And the instant I was eligible to become an instructor, I wanted to give back. I wanted, I wanted to be part of the, the crew that was teaching and, and helping everybody out. That's been a standard thing for me now is to, is to teach at the Club Charters Camp. I'd go to them even without teaching. Like I, I went to Iceland. Uh, I went to that camp and specifically did not teach. I just wanted to be wow. a student. It's, it's wow. nice to be able to go and just be strictly a student. I love being a student. So the Globetrotters camp, it's just, there was a lot of people that, a lot of black belts that would go to these things have no intention of teaching. They just want to go there and enjoy jujitsu, enjoy learning from other black belts and enjoy rolling with people from all over the place. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about uh, what Christian has done with building Globetrotters and, you know, kind of guiding it into what it's been today. It's a very valuable part of the jujitsu community. Advice or thoughts for those of us in the master's divisions, the 40, 50 plus practitioners? Yeah, listen to your body. We don't recover <laughs> as quickly as we used to. And the spirit is often very willing, but the, the body is weak. The body is not what it used to be. And I mean, like right now, I don't like the kinds of injuries that I get. I get these almost exclusively overuse injuries where I did more than I should have. I was able to train, but then I regretted it afterwards. So I was like, well, I guess now I'm going to take strength and conditioning more seriously. So, you know, I just, I just got a whole bunch of equipment to be able to do strength and conditioning at home. And again, I have to listen to my body. When I start, first started training, I started at 37 and I could train, like if I, if I wanted to do a week long camp, I could do that. I, you know, I was pretty beat up afterwards, but I could do it. But if I were to do week long camps every week, guarantee I'd accumulate injuries. And what was happening in just my regular training was I found that if I trained four days in a row, I loved it. I enjoyed it. But if I rolled hard all four of those days, I would start to accumulate these injuries. But if I trained like Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, I could keep up that pace. If I never trained three days in a row each week, I found that I could train indefinitely and not really accumulate any of those weird little injuries. So by experimenting with the schedule, experimenting with how hard you roll on different days, you know, when I started teaching all the time, I had to be there Monday through Thursday. So some days I would have to, I would have to take a little bit easier. 
I'd have to you know, back off my training and focus maybe more on technical development rather than just rolling hard. So you have to listen to your body. If you're accumulating any kind of injuries in jiu-jitsu, you're doing it wrong. If you're accumulating overuse injuries, if you're accumulating acute injuries, you're doing jiu-jitsu wrong. I mean, just end of story. Accidents happen, yes, but most of the injuries that we run into in jiu-jitsu tend to be our own fault. They tend to be us not listening to our bodies, trying to do things that we shouldn't be doing technically. So by being aware of that and being a little bit more conservative and not assuming that we can just instantly recover from things, that's really been the biggest thing for me as the, as the officially old grappler. Now I'm 50 now and it's like, I just can't do things I used to. So now I'm gonna have to spend more time off the mats to make my time on the mats more effective. I like the abstract things of jujitsu. I like taking both the what are the theories and what's the practice and having them inform each other. Some of the black belts I go to, I go to them for their exhaustive knowledge of the details and situations and scenarios and what's the right thing to do. There's other black belts that I go to to learn from that are more about the concepts. What's the weight distribution? What are my overall goals? How am I approaching jujitsu? Not from a do this in this situation, but what are the principles that I'm trying to follow? And a lot of times when you kind of like ping pong between those ways of learning jujitsu, they actually inform each other. By learning the details, you can learn the concepts. By learning the concepts, you can fill in the details. That's something that has been very, very important to me in jujitsu is to is to always look at things from different perspectives mm. and you use that to inform the total of my jujitsu and other people's jujitsu. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time. Hey, where can the listeners get more information about you and everything that you're up to? So simplebjj.com is where I write. And now that, I'm, now that I'm not teaching all the time, I'm going to be doing some more writing, especially for my students back up in Watertown. You can get a hold of me on Instagram under simplebjj. I'm on Twitter, simplebjj. Facebook, you can find me as Paul Elliott. But if you send me a friend's request, you have to have a gi on in one of your pictures because I don't accept friend's requests from anybody but jujitsu people. <laughs> but I'm always happy to chat about jujitsu. Um, any way that you can find to get a hold of me, I'm happy to help out any way I can. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time. Hey, everyone out there, thanks so much for listening. I am your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Remember to give us a nice review on Spotify and Apple Music and all the places and check us out next time. And Paul, thank you so much for your time again. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I look forward to doing it again sometime, I hope. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was, it was great being on.